0: of you that don't know me, my name is Mackenzie Buxman. I just finally changed it. I've been married for four years, and I I don't know, I was lazy. (laughs) I just finally got around to it, but it still sounds so weird to say, but I am Mackenzie Buxman. (laughs) Uh, If you're wondering how to spell that, it is B-U-X-M-A-N. There you go. Um, I've been attending CB for um, almost four years, it'll be four years in January, and I serve in a couple of different ways. I get to decorate this place, I teach a women's uh, study every week, but this morning I get to do something that I'm most passionate about, and that's that I get to teach from the Word along with Andrew Zellers this morning. And we're going to dive into John 1.14, it's just one verse. Um, But it's a verse that presents one of the core theological beliefs of the Christian faith. It's an area of our theology that can kind of stir up a variety of reactions, and it's the incarnation. So we're going to explore the significance of Jesus as God incarnate this morning. And I'm going to pray for us before we dive in. Um, For those of you that probably most of you don't know this, I'm 20 weeks pregnant today which is really great, um, but when people ask me how I'm doing, the number one thing I say is I am so tired, um, and I'm just really feeling my body trying to grow a human life this morning, so I'm going to selfishly pray for myself. that The Lord would give me strength to, to preach this morning, so let's pray together. God of grace, we come before you humbly this morning, and we ask that you would speak to us through your word, that it would pierce our hearts this morning, that your spirit would speak to us, that it would convict us, um, that we would feel um, just in awe of the mystery um, and the wonder that is the incarnation I just pray for myself, Lord. Give me the strength to get through this as I talk about Jesus taking on human flesh. I am feeling my human body very acutely this morning. So, Lord, just help us as we dive into your word this morning. Let me pray all of this in your name. Amen. So, the word incarnation can be a bit scary for some of us. Uh, One, it just is kind of an intimidating word, incarnation. Uh, But in our world of technology where information is at our fingertips, it's easy to feel unsettled by the idea of something remaining a mystery. And that is what the incarnation ultimately is. It's a mystery. We might feel uneasy when told that we can study the mystery of the incarnation all we want, but we will never fully understand it or be able to explain it in our human language. That doesn't stop us from trying. Most people would say, oh, the incarnation, yes, Jesus is fully God and fully man. But think about that phrase for a second. I mean, really, it makes no sense. It's like saying two plus two equals five. Oh, yeah, no, that's not right. If Jesus is fully God and fully man, we have this thing, two halves make a whole. Well, if Jesus is two holes, wait, what? That's impossible. He can't be two holes, but he also can't be two halves. Okay, Are, is your brain spinning yet? I promise, we're not going to go down that road today. Um, I, when I go down that road, I feel like Abbas or Alice going down the rabbit hole. Just like, Wah. But some people love going down rabbit holes. Great for them. Uh, others, not so much. When they're introduced to the mystery of the incarnation, they think, okay, I don't understand this, but if this is who God says he is, then I believe it. Uh, a few years ago, I was serving in the children's ministry at a different church, and I sat down next to these um, two little girls. who were probably six or seven years old, and they were coloring, and I asked if I could color with them, and all of a sudden, they just stopped coloring, and the one girl says to the other, Isn't it crazy that God is three persons, but also he's just one person? And the other girl's like, yeah, that is really crazy, but it's true. And I just like, I'm coloring and I'm like, what the heck? I didn't even know what the Trinity was when I was six or seven years old. So I don't know. These kids' parents, great for them. Um, But I was also just struck by their literal childlike faith. Yeah, God's Trinitarian. Yeah, Jesus is the Son of God. Now, I just want to clarify, it's not wrong for us to try to want to understand the incarnation or these mysteries. Um, But at the end of the day, it will always be just that. It will be a mystery. So wherever you're at this morning, maybe you're the person who loves discovering Or discussing the mystery of the incarnation. Maybe you're the person who feels like their brain is doing mental gymnastics when asked to think about it. Or maybe you're the person that has no problem with it. You like that. Okay. Or maybe you're the person who thinks it's crazy. There's no way this can be true. This is impossible. Wherever you're at this morning, I want you to try to set that aside. And let John tell you what he wants to tell you about the mystery of the Incarnation this morning. So before we jump into the passage, though, we're going to do a bit of review. So we've been going through chapter one of John's Gospel, and it's his introduction, or uh, a commentator, Leslie Newbegin, talks about it as his overture to the book. I don't know how many of you guys, how frequently you listen to symphonies. I don't do it very often. But uh, in a symphony, they've got the beginning, the overture, has certain musical notes that it's like, oh, hey, guess what? You're going to hear these throughout the entire rest of the symphony. And John's doing that exact same thing. He's introducing theology by using language, cultural, and religious framework that his hearers already possess that you're going to see throughout the rest of the book. And he's using it to show his readers who Jesus is. And we learned in the first sermon that Jesus is the word or the logos in Greek. And that he was present at the beginning of creation. And even more, all things were created through him. Now, Western culture very much views our physical world as separate, or at least mostly separate, from the spiritual. But John is showing that's simply not the case. He presents that in the act of creation, the spiritual met the physical, the spiritual divine spoke. The physical world into existence. And as I was reading through John chapter 1 this week, I was thinking, man, the act of the incarnation, the spiritual met the physical in the most intimate of ways in that moment. The two, divine and human, are so intertwined. Church leaders and scholars have spent centuries contemplating and studying this mystery. Where does the divine part of Jesus begin and his humanity end? Sometimes that leads to us sorting through Jesus' actions in the Gospels and assigning the words divinity or humanity like sticky notes to his actions. Oh, here, yes, in his temptation, this is his humanity showing. But here where he raises Lazarus from the dead, that's his divinity showing. Now, I don't think it's necessarily wrong to try to understand the incarnation in that way, but I also don't think it's super helpful and I wonder if maybe we're asking the wrong question when we try to do that. Instead of trying to understand how much of Jesus is divine and how much of him is human, what if we simply asked God to reveal the significance of what such a blending of the divine and human means? And we let go of trying to quantify it. And I think that's what John is trying to do in verse 14. And I think scripture on the whole seems to be more concerned with showing us why God would become incarnate and that Jesus simply is God incarnate, not how it is that he is incarnate. So turn with me to John 1.14 and let's dive into the text and see what John wants us to learn about God through the mystery of the incarnation. So I'm just going to read the verse for us really quick. It's a short verse. But go ahead and turn there if you want. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So let's look at that first phrase for a moment. And the Word became flesh. So John comes back to this theme of Jesus as the word or logos. And remember in verse 1, John talks about how in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. This word both was God and was separate from God. And now John introduces this idea to his readers that not only was the word with God and also God himself, but that the word became flesh flesh. Sit with that for a minute. John is claiming that the creator of the universe, the divine being through whom we were spoken into existence, in whom we breathe and move and exist, that God became flesh. He put on human skin. That's a profound truth, you guys. And whether you've heard it before a hundred times or you've never heard it, just think about it. The God who created the sun, the moon, the stars, who created the trees of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, who created us in his image, the God who has no beginning nor an end, he became flesh. He became a fragile human being. And look what it says next. It says that the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. Now, John isn't being flippant here in his wording. He's using this specific Greek word. It's a good translation. Dwelt is great. But uh, we're going to get into what the Greek means and the Hebrew means. If you don't know, I love Hebrew. So I, of course, was excited when I could find a way to talk about the Old Testament while preaching from the New Testament. But we're going to start with the Greek here this morning. So the word is skene. Can you say that? Skene. So the definition of skene, literally, John is saying Jesus has pitched his tent. That's what skene means, to tent or to encamp. Jesus pitched his tent. Among us. It sounds kind of crass, but that's literally what it means. Now, stay with me for a second. So the Greek consonants, skeine, are basically an S, a K, and an N. And those are found in the same Hebrew word of shekan. And some of you might be familiar with the word shekinah, the shekinah glory that filled the tabernacle and the temple. So John's using skeine, he's cueing us in to maybe go back and read the story, that moment where God's glory filled the temple. So I'm going to go back to Exodus 40. You can turn there if you want, but I'm going to do a quick quick crash course. So Israel has left Egypt in Exodus 40 and taken a couple of detours along the way, both literally and metaphorically. They were worshiping the golden calf. They have complained a lot about food and water. And there's this moment where Moses specifically asks Yahweh not to send them out without God's presence. Now, God's always been with them, but they want something a little more tangible. And so Yahweh gives them instructions to build the tabernacle. And after its completion, we read in chapter 40, verse 38, that the glory of Yahweh filled the Mishkan. The shakan, the tabernacle. And I just want to stop for just a moment. Think about the significance of this for our Israelite neighbors, okay? This moment for them of their God filling the tabernacle, the dwelling with his presence, this is profound. It's profound because up to this point, Yahweh has always been with his people but this moment where he chooses to dwell with his people in this specific way is a poignant moment in their story. One of my favorite professors, Dr. Rebecca Jasper, she teaches over at Multnomah. She calls this moment where God fills the tabernacle God in a box. And it sounds, again, kind of crass and like a bit of an oversimplification. But it's kind of what it is. The creator of the universe, the one who spoke it into existence, the one who brought Israel out of Egypt, is now trying to bring them into the promised land. He just limited his presence to a tent, to a box that the people of Israel created. Now, when I say limited, don't hear that he's confined or he's stuck in the box. But it means that he physically manifested his presence so that they could feel him. They could tangibly see that he's with them. Do you guys know what this means? It means that Yahweh loves his people so much and is so desperate to be in relationship with them. That he would limit himself to their human ways to be near them. He would put his presence in a box for them. By doing so, God, he condescends himself to be near Israel. He humbles himself to be with his people. Now, that same Shekinah glory that I was talking about that filled the tabernacle, it's also what filled the temple In 1 Kings 8.10, and it's the same glory that sadly departs from the temple in Ezekiel 11 after Israel has sinned and Yahweh is heartbroken. But in Zechariah 2.10, the prophet speaking on behalf of Yahweh promises, I come and I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Lord. There's our word again, Shekin. He's going to dwell among them again. And Isaiah 7, we're all familiar with the passage, said that this messianic figure is going to be called Emmanuel, God with us. And unlike Yahweh appearing to Israel through a cloud or fire in the tabernacle, John in his gospel shows us that Jesus' whole ministry is this tabernacling. I know, it rolls right off the tongue, Right? It's a tabernacling. It's a dwelling with them. The disciples get to experience his continuous, uh, glimpses, uh, continuous glimpses of Jesus' glory. Like in the story of Jesus turning the water to wine in John 2.11, John writes, this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and he manifested his glory. Or at the raising of Lazarus in John eleven40. Jesus says to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Instead of filling a tent, we see through John's gospel that God's now tabernacling among us. And that it's continuous through the person of Jesus Christ. So going back to John 1.14, the word became flesh... And dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory of God is seen tabernacling among humanity through Jesus, God incarnate. God in a box, right? But a different box. This time, it's God in human flesh. That's how much he loves us. That is how much the creator of the universe wants to be in relationship with us. Just like the tabernacle and the filling of the temple, he condescends himself to our ways to be with us. Philippians 2 says he humbled himself, he emptied himself for us. He relates to us by becoming like us. His plan to save us means becoming like us. Guys, this is huge. The other cool thing, I had Marissa read Hebrews 1 for us, is that you realize Jesus as God incarnate is the clearest picture we have of God. He can feel so far off from us at times and intangible, but... The incarnation is God's greatest revelation of his character. Hebrews says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That is so cool. He doesn't need to feel so far away and intangible to us because through Jesus, we see who God is and how much he loves us. Our verse talks about that glory, the same glory of the God of the exodus who is slow to anger and abounding in chesed love and faithfulness. That grace and truth. That is who this incarnate God is. That is who wants to be present with us. And the last scripture I want to leave you guys with is Revelation 21.3. It, it shows, again, it has our words, skane or shakan, and it shows how this is why he came for us, because he wants to be with us. So Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold the dwelling place, the skane or the shakan of God. It's with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will be with us. He will be among us. That is where he longs to be, is with his creation. That's the point of the incarnation. To restore us back to relationship and presence with him. So it's easy to get sidetracked of, Okay, how does the incarnation work? It doesn't make sense. But John 1.14, it's not getting at that. It's reminding us that there's no separation between the spiritual and the physical. That through the incarnation, we experience the epitome of the two. We experience a God desperate to be with his creation. Through the love of the Father, the incarnation of the Son, and the coming of the Holy Spirit we now get to be his tabernacle. We get to be his temple, his dwelling place. So I'm going to welcome up Andrew, and he's going to unpack for us what the significance of the incarnation, God dwelling among us, means for us today. How do we apply this?
1: Thanks, Kenzie. Oh, you can clap. You can. Come on, go go. There you go. When I was, um, we met on Tuesday, we usually meet on Thursdays as well for a preaching meeting, but I met with Kenzie on Tuesday, and I uh, she kind of laid out what she had, and I don't usually have much done until maybe the end of Thursday on my sermon, um, and Kenzie kind of laid out what she had, and I just said, this is good, how long did this take you? She's like, uh, maybe like an hour and a half, two hours, and I was like... But like after reading and stuff, I know you wrote. And she's like, yeah, yeah, with reading. It was like two hours, and I was like, oh, okay, super. Maybe one day I'll get there. So like McKenzie said, um, I'm going to be talking about the so what. So what, right? God's incarnation. He comes to be with his people, to dwell among us. He takes on human flesh, our likeness, to show us how to be human. And so, what's the big deal? What's the main takeaway? What's the so what? And for that, let me read you a story as we answer, begin answering this question. This comes from um, a really good book called Reappearing Church. Uh, I've talked about it before. Highly recommend it. If I can find where I'm supposed to be. Here it is. At the height of Hollywood's golden age, Howard Hughes was everywhere. Plastered all over the gossip pages, he was the mid-century embodiment of a glamorous celebrity. Someone who drunk lustily from the well of personal freedom that the modern world offered. An Academy Award winning Hollywood producer, property baron, daredevil pilot, and breaker of land speed records. He was tall, handsome, and smashingly rich. Hughes dated scores of Hollywood's most desired women. He was a walking advertisement for the freedoms of technology, sex, money, and power offered by the modern world. Hughes's later years would be anything but an expanse of freedom. At some point during his 40s, Howard Hughes disappeared into darkened rooms within hotels he owned, becoming a recluse. Blocking out the world, he he retreated into the screen, a movie projector in his room, allowing him to endlessly binge on on his favorite films while he filled his body with codeine. A telephone line, his only communication with the outside world the man who embodied the freedom and movement of the modern world now paralyzed by the screen. Oppressed and imprisoned by his appetites, pleasure and power gave way to paranoia and suffocating anxiety. Howard Hughes is a symbolic figure. With the first half of his life, he showcased the promise of our unlimited freedom. But in the second half of his life, he became a different kind of pioneer, showing us the destination of unlimited freedom. Welcome to church. <laughs> Man's longing for absolute freedom is not a new concept, is it? You think back to the garden. Our first brothers and sisters, our first, the first images of man, or rather of God, Adam and Eve, they sought to satiate That hunger, that desire that's in each of us to be free, to have unlimited freedom. God restricts them in the garden, doesn't he? But it's really a minor restriction. It's a garden full of yeses with one no. Eat of any tree in this garden, except for this one, right? It even says, you are free. There's that word freedom, You have freedom to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you do, you will certainly die. And rather than walk in the presence of the Father in the garden, depending on his goodness, trusting in his words, the first humans chose their unlimited freedom. They wanted their autonomy. In our flesh, each one of us struggle with this. Our desire is to have our own way, to get what we want, to not be restricted. In our flesh, we want no limits, no boundaries, no restrictions, total autonomy. And our hunger for complete autonomy and freedom, it's always existed, but Howard Hughes, he shows us kind of the end result, that when humanity gets what they want, it does not go well for them. When we have millions and millions of dollars so that no one can say to us, you can't do that, or there's nothing I can't buy. Howard Hughes, there's stories where he would literally be in a hotel that he owned, there'd be a restaurant with a neon sign across the street that would shine into his hotel room and he hated it, and rather than move to a different side of the hotel, he would buy the restaurant and shut it down. This man knew no limits, he had no boundaries, and look where it led him it slowly eroded and destroyed his life. The irony is that in our consumer-based culture, it's built on the promise of the good life, that if you would just be willing to accept that you were born good, naturally, you were born healthy, you were born right, but that Through uh, the restrictions and the limitations and the boundaries of your family, of religion, of old traditions that are outdated, you've been corrupted. And so what do you need to do? This is what our culture tells us, right? You need to find you again. You need to find your truth. You need to find out who you really are. You need to let go of those traditions that are restricting you and holding you back. You need to let go of that religion that's stifling you. You need to move away from your family. Get get, get out of those familial ways of relating to each other and find your own truth. This is what our culture tells us, right? Translation. Be free. Do you. Pursue your autonomy. You deserve it. Don't let anyone tell you no. No you can do anything you want, decide what's right for you. Even though that in and of itself is a ridiculous idea that you could have your own truth and so could I and what happens when they don't work though? It doesn't even make sense. Here's the truth. Our culture offers us endless promises to fulfill that desire for freedom, that desire, that hunger, to be free, but our culture is what helps to create that desire and that hunger in the first place. Does that make sense? Our contemporary consumer culture offers medicine to cure diseases it creates. It's crazy. Be free, we say. Don't let anyone stop you. Oh, by the way, if you want to be free, have this new phone, buy this. You'll have unlimited access. It's all about no restrictions. Get all the information you could possibly want. Think about this 50 years ago, right? Older forms of consumerism, merely just a few decades back, required the person to at least leave their house and travel to the store, to the mall. Right? If you wanted to be consumeristic and live into that American dream to get what you want, to get yours, you at least had to put your shoes on, get out of your pajamas, and go out of the house. Not anymore. Right? <laughs> Our current stage of intensified consumerism comes to us in the form of home deliveries, downloads, streaming. You can have McDonald's show up on your door. Maybe we've done it before, I don't know. (laughs) All of it, just being vulnerable. All of it increasing the strength of our individualism. Our culture promises that we can have it all. And we cannot, here's the reality though, we can't escape from the truth that it isn't enough to fulfill us. Right? We can't escape from the call of our culture to say you can have it all But we also can't escape from the void that it's never been enough to satiate that longing in our hearts. We're like little kids eating and drinking sugar, thinking it's going to fill us and quench our thirst. Thinking it's going to fill us up and make us whole, and it's just going to make us sick. So, there must be another way to be human. And this is why the Incarnation Matters. In our flesh, we want freedom from restrictions. We don't want any restrictions, but in the spirit, right? in the spirit, in Jesus incarnating, God becoming man, we see that what we should want is freedom with the right restrictions. Galatians 5:16 through 18 says, "So I say, walk by the spirit." And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with one another. So that you are not to do whatever you want. You're not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now hold that thought. Keep Howard Hughes and this this way of thinking that our culture... We're, we're plagued with. We're so in it. Think, hold that for a moment and switch gears with me. For millennia, God had related to his people primarily through his words, right? The, the, the Israelites had the Torah, right? They had God's word written. They also had God's word spoken orally. They would remember stories and past stories down, like the Exodus to their children and their grandchildren, rehearsing the story of the Exodus. God related to them primarily through his words, but he also dwelt among them, as Mackenzie just talked about, right? In the tabernacle, um, in the temple, in a cloud, beyond, beyond the curtain. But now, Jesus comes to us, right? God is coming to us, and he's not just coming to tell us how to flourish as, 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 human, as humans. He's not just telling us with his words. God has decided, I will show them. I will show them how to be human. I will show them a new way to live. This is no small thing. The incarnation is Jesus taking on our flesh God joyfully takes on the flesh of his own creation, and in doing so, he reveals, right, obviously we know that God must love us deeply if he's willing to do this. He will stop at nothing, including taking on our own brokenness, right? Our flesh is not perfect, right? So God chooses to take on our flesh, our humanity, in order to draw us to himself, to show us what it's like to truly live, to be human as we were meant to be. The flesh of man is riddled with sickness, right? It's riddled with brokenness. It's bent towards temptation to sin. But in the incarnation, Jesus overcomes the flesh and literally creates a new way to be human. And here's the main point. Here's the answer to the so what question. How does Jesus overcome the temptation to sin and deal with the brokenness of man's flesh? Answer, total and complete reliance on the Father's presence. Jesus is the most free being that ever walked the face of the, world, the earth, right? right. If anyone, God being God, obviously he has the option to leave the restrictions of our human flesh and bone, but he willingly stays put in that human shell in order to show his children, us, how to live. Jesus wants to defeat the temptation to sin. He wants to defeat our brokenness. He wants to reorder our loves, showing us how to live, how to thrive, how to flourish. Jesus overcomes the power of the flesh by regularly entering into his Father's presence. Luke 5, 15 through 16. And we're going to see this throughout the Gospel of John. But I liked this, this story in particular. Jesus has just healed a man of leprosy. Okay? And there's a lot of people around that need to be healed. It says this. Yet the news about him, about Jesus, spread all throughout the regions, all the more. So that crowds of people came near him. To be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. Jesus would have made an awful 21st century American pastor. I don't know how many churches he would get hired at. There's opportunity for ministry what do you do? We, you say yes. You 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 say yes. You step into it. There's an opportunity. He's got power. He can heal. God Himself chooses, though. I need to be with my Father. I need to seek the presence of my Father in order to be sustained in this human, fleshly body. The only way to defeat the temptation of sin is to be with my Father to pray, to seek His will. If this is how Jesus lived, and if this is how Jesus wanted to show us what it's like to be human, to thrive in our humanity under the guiding presence of the Father, right? If this is what it looks like, where do we get off thinking that we don't have to do what Jesus did in our daily lives? It's crazy, but so many of us, I mean myself included, struggle to enter into his presence consistently, to see our desperate need for him, even when um, amazing and incredible opportunities stand before us. God calls us to pause, to not be hurried for anything, to step into his presence, To seek him, to hear from him, to genuinely seek his will, not your will for God's will for your life, but God's will for your life? When God decides to put on flesh, and he he incarnates, and he walks among us, we better pay attention to the things that he does Not just the things that he says in the Gospels. Though he says so much that is so good and so incredible. It's in these little moments where Jesus withdrew to the lonely places. That God is kind of winking at us and saying, hey, pay attention. I seek my Father before anything else. What makes us think that we don't need to do the same? We need him. So we need to move from a posture of information and evaluation, right? I think of it kind of like this, and if you're sitting like this, I'm sorry. Um, But I think, you know, kind of a, we sit in church on Sundays or just in general, there's this posture as believers, it's kind of like, you know, kind of like I'm ready to consume. I'm ready to evaluate what you have to say, right? That's, we've found that to be almost a good thing in American evangelicalism, that it's good and right to what's the doctrine, what are we believing, what is he saying, what are they saying, you know, what am I, I need to learn more, give me more teaching, pastor. We need to move from that posture to a posture of transformation and exaltation. And that looks like this. I'm on my knees, and I'm before him, regularly often not so concerned about what's going on out there more concerned with what's going on in here with how he's meeting me in those lonely places old ways of seeking renewal of the church seeking renewal both in the in the body and outside of the body in our city they aren't working anymore They're just not. Not in a post-Christian city like ours. They might still work in conservative Bible Belt areas, right? Where more programmatic event-style ministries are still thriving. But in a post-Christian city, nothing is going to renew our city other than a total dependence on God to move, right? One of the benefits of being in a city like ours is recognizing more and more, and I think we're all getting there, what are we going to do? Like, how do I reach my neighbor? We live in a city where it's not just that people are de-churched, right? Where people have some background with the church, that maybe they grew up going to Easter services or Christmas services, so they have some framework. We live in a city that's post-Christian, unchurched, like Missionaries go to other parts of the world to reach these kinds of people, people. And so I know that, I believe that many of us have a desire to see our co-workers meet Jesus, or family, or neighbors, and yet we find ourselves in a place of kind of shrugging our shoulders going, but how? They feel so far the answer, I think God is being kind to us in this. And we've talked about how God is kind of, it feels like there's a, some, a movement in the church right now where God is kind of purging, right? Like you're either going to rely on him completely and like desperately seek him to move because you're so, you're so in, intimately aware of your lack of ability to, to, to see things change Like, none of us are impressive enough anymore. Certain kinds of ministries that used to work, they just aren't aren't impressive to the watching world anymore. Not in a post-Christian city like ours. What do we do then? What do God's people do when they're in exile? They seek him desperately. There's a remnant, a small group, who are regularly on their hands and knees crying out for more of him for more of his presence, right? If Jesus has to do it, if Jesus has to step away from doing miraculous signs and wonders to seek the Father, what are we doing? We've got to be able to and willing to do the same thing. How do you become desperate for the presence of God? I think you grow increasingly aware of your weakness. You ask God to make yourself weak, that he might be made strong and perfect in you. You become desperate to understand how fragile and feeble each one of us are. Not in a self-loathing, hating who you are kind of way, but in a, a humble recognition that God alone sustains me and God alone saves me. You grow more and more aware of your need for him, right? In the cross of Christ, we are far more sinful and broken than we ever thought. And at the very same time, we are far more loved and cared for than we ever dared hope. I want to encourage you to pray to the Father. You're like, this is a sermon on prayer? Yeah. I mean, it's all we got. It's all we got. What are we going to do? Like, no one's coming up with better ideas in the West for how to reach a... You know what is happening? There's a movement of of pastors and churches who are growing sick and tired of being sick and tired of the state of the the church, of seeing an entire generation of potential church leaders who are completely being missed right now because... They're so far from the church, right? And the only way we're going to reach those people is by utterly relying on Him, seeking His presence, and asking God to move in us, in our hearts first, and then in our city. Amen? Amen. The incarnation of our Lord teaches us that unlimited freedom is actually enslavement and that. Only by abiding in the Father's presence will we, try, will we find true freedom. And guess what? It's hard work. Abiding in Him is scary. Doing what I just described, moving away from that posture of evaluation and information to one of exaltation and transformation, getting on your knees, it is costly. It's not easy, but it is worth it. You will find yourself more filled, more renewed, more excited, more passionate. Not less. I want to end with a quote from Augustine. Would you close your eyes for a moment? It's, only, it's a short, co- short quote. I'll just read it to you. Listen to these words. Be overcome by his goodness and his glory. Man's maker was made man. That he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast. That the bread of life might hunger, that the fountain might thirst, that the light would sleep, the way be tired on his journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips the foundation of human existence of all creation be suspended on wood that strength might grow weak that the healer might be wounded that life might die father we are so indebted to you for your goodness to us. And yet, all debts have been paid in the cross of Christ. All has been forgiven. You lovingly accept us and pursue us. Thank you, Jesus, that you are willing to put on human flesh and bone to not just tell us how to live and how to thrive and how to flourish, but to show us. Would you help us, Father, as we read through and study this gospel, that we would notice those little moments where Jesus seems to step away from a mo- for just a verse, just a moment. What is he doing? There's so much opportunity before him. Oh, you're seeking your Father in heaven. It's the only thing that will sustain him in this fleshly body. Father, this is, is the only thing that will sustain us and our fleshly bodies is more of your presence. And you, upon sending your Son, have sent your Spirit to live. Now the very presence of God lives in us. What? It's incredible. And you've called us to spread your presence out. Just like you called Adam and Eve to spread the Garden of Eden out. to, To turn the thorns and the thistles and the chaos of the wilderness into ordered, beautiful garden. And they failed. But you sent the new Adam, the better Adam, your son, to show us how to live. That we would spread the goodness of the garden. Your presence, as you walked among Adam and Eve, now you live inside us and you've called us to spread your presence. And God, it feels overwhelming. Sometimes it feels daunting to know how to see other people meet Jesus. And I think, God, that you're getting to a point in the Western church where you're just waiting for your people to say, "Uh, none of our strategies are going to work. We can only rely on you. I ask that it would begin in the leaders in this church's heart first. That we would lead out in total reliance on you. That it would catch on like a blazing fire and spread in this community. That we wouldn't be after numbers or certain successes or milestones. That we would solely be after you. More of you, Father. That's what we want. That's what we need. And you've promised that if we would seek you, you would give it to us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for coming and making yourself known to us in the incarnation. We love you. Amen. I want to encourage you as we take communion. The table's open. If you call Jesus your Lord and Savior you've sought him for forgiveness for your sins I want to encourage you to to take the bread and the juice and to consider what does it look like for you to be desperate for him what kind of conversations do you need to begin having with the Holy Spirit about your own heart maybe it means asking him to reveal to you more your brokenness so that you might find yourself more needing him and relying on him. Maybe it means inviting other people to speak into your life, to encourage you as you seek his presence for accountability and vulnerability. We've got home communities where that can happen. We've got formation groups. Um, If you're interested in any of those things, please come talk to one of us. But I want to encourage you to spend these next moments as we take communion together, contemplating how is God calling you to step into more of his presence in the simple day-in and day-out moments because that's where it matters. Love you guys.
0: We desire to be formed by the word of God in community. If you have questions about this week's sermon, we would love to hear from you. For more information about our church, please visit centralbible.church.